Haymaking Days by John Stuttard. Chapter 19. Lambing. I apologise in advance for the disagreeably graphic taint to this chapter, but I hope to portray how I experienced nature not only as it uplifted me, but also as it frustrated and shocked me. Mum, Dad and Peter had gone out to the Duke of York for their usual pre-dinner drink. I was alone on the farm in charge, as Mum put it, swelling my sense of maturity and easing her conscience for leaving me alone. I wandered around the yard. First I checked on the horses, then the sheep in the open-fronted new buildings that Dad had built behind the yard. The sheep due to give birth most imminently were huddled together, but none was lambing. I checked Hughie's barn. In between the two giant haystacks, we positioned the adopter. This was a wooden pentagon-shaped device we used for getting sheep to adopt lambs that were not their own, or to accept lambs of their own that they had rejected. The sheep's heads were trapped as if caught in medieval stocks, facing the inner centre of the adopter. Their movement was restricted so that they could not turn to hinder the suckling lambs at their teats. In the centre of the device, there was hay and water for them. We had three sheep in the adopter that night. Their heads all facing inwards, I imagined them gossiping to one another. When first introduced to the adopter, some would kick out blindly as the lambs nudged their teats for milk. But if the lambs were persistent, the sheep would eventually give up their resistance and let them have their drink. After all, it was warm and they had food and drink. They were usually exhausted from having given birth. Outside, there was a biting wind and icy rain blew horizontally across the fields. With the huge black doors closed, the barn was relatively cosy. It was the maternity ward of the farm. I was worried because there was one lamb that was making no effort to suckle at all. I was angry at the mother. This was her lamb. She had given birth to twins in the fields only a couple of hours before. Dad and I had found her sheltering from the cold on the edge of the field in a recess. Had it been dark, we probably would never have seen her. One tiny lamb was standing, suckling happily, wriggling its long tail with pleasure. But the other was lying helpless, still wet with placenta that the mother had not licked clean. The little fellow was staring into the ground, hardly able to lift his head. I had caught the favoured lamb and carried it by its front legs letting it dangle alongside me. The mother followed me closely, bleating to her lamb. Dad was carrying the rejected lamb, following behind, in case the mother attempted to make a run for it. But she was very obliging, following us submissively all the way into the maternity ward, anxiously bleating to her newborn. I knew the drill. I put the lamb into a compartment of the adopter. Dad manhandled the mother until her head was facing the centre. Then he trapped her neck with the arching slider. She tried to stare behind her to see what was going on, but to no avail. She had to surrender to her other senses. 
the accepted lamb immediately began suckling again, but the rejected lamb sat silently as if dozing. Make sure she doesn't lie down and suffocate it, Dad instructed. By then, I knew exactly what to do. We both returned to the house and he went to clean himself up while Mum and Peter waited impatiently. Come on, Dad, we're going to miss them, Peter urged Dad impatiently, fretting, as always, that they would miss the regulars that he wanted to see. Give me a minute, Dad replied unenthusiastically. He didn't really want to go to the pub, but at this stage he could still be bullied, torn between his responsibilities. After they left, I returned to Huey's barn and shook my head at the pitiful sight of the abandoned lamb. He wasn't going to suckle, it was obvious. I lifted him out of the adopter and carried him back into the house. I placed him in a cardboard box and pushed it against the Argus stove for warmth. He must drink. I made up some formula milk and tried to get him to suckle from a bottle. I frowned as the milk trickled out of the sides of his tiny mouth. I was squeezing the milk into him in the hope that at least some of the life-giving liquid would make it into his stomach. The phone rang. Hello, is your mum there? Asked a familiar voice. No, she's at the pub, I replied reluctantly. Okay, I'll call later. Bye. He hurried off the phone. When they all returned, I explained the situation with the rejected lamb to Dad. He put on his work clothes again and stepped outside to check on the sheep one more time before dinner. Peter looked sorrowfully at the lamb in the box. He hated farming, but he had a kind heart. Poor little thing, he commented and went off to watch TV. Mr Brown rang, I told Mum knowing that it was safe to pass on the message now that Dad had gone out. Mum looked at me contritely. Thank you, darling. In the morning, I rushed down to the kitchen to check on my patient. But, inevitably, the little body was still and the eyes closed. Lambing season is both an inspiring and an awful time. It's exhausting for all involved. Dad was a diligent shepherd he would go out in the middle of the night with a torch to check on the sheep, whatever the weather. As I got older, I would too. I usually went with him, but sometimes alone. After a few seasons, one just knows what to do. I learned so much by being with Dad and watching him, by observing the animal's behaviour, listening to the vets and farmers, and bitter experience. By the age of 13, I was an accomplished midwife to the sheep, assisting in difficult births. My smaller hand and forearm were an advantage. Without wanting to paint too disturbing an image, suffice it to say, I could reposition lambs in the uterus if they got stuck, and on many occasions, help the struggling mother by tugging on the unborn lamb's forelegs and head while she pushed and grunted. Occasionally, I had to remove a stillborn lamb from its mother's womb. If the lamb had been dead for some time, this could be a horrifying job. I cannot forget, on one occasion, how I had to extract a decaying fetus piece by piece. 
In such cases, the mother is usually already very sick and immobile. She is at serious risk of septicemia. There is no time to wait for the vet. I had no alternative but to roll up sleeves and get stuck into the task. Of course I would then call the vet, but in the days before cell phones, it could be a day before he arrived. A lamb is such a fragile creature when it arrives. In Lancashire, it is usually born into harsh weather. The birth itself can be so complicated that I used to wonder whether they were ever intended to give birth without our help. If they survive the birth, lambs risk rejection by their own mothers. There are also plenty of predators. A fox will attack an unprotected lamb, or even a ewe if she is sick or vulnerable. I have seen the stranded sheep's udders ripped away by a fox, cold-bloodedly intent on accessing her warm, rich milk. In the very first few moments of life, before they have even stood up for the first time, a lamb, if the mother is unable or unwilling to protect it, often has its eyes and tongue pecked out by crows and magpies. They die soon afterwards. I would find their mutilated corpses and rail against the cruelty of the birds. In addition to predators, there is of course disease. The most prevalent killer that we experienced was scour. The first sign is bright yellow, foul-smelling faeces. It is probably caused by parasitic worms and it kills after only a day or two. It infects whole fields at once. Even if we did catch it, the treatment does not always work. The numbers of dead lambs we sometimes found in just one field was distressing to both Dad and I. With their tiny bodies strewn all over, the fields looked like they had been the scene of some cruel artillery bombardment. Peter, a keen historian of World War I, upon seeing such a field of dead lambs, once commented, Passchendaele. In addition to all the havoc that nature can wreak, man adds his own grisly touch. Another trick we learned from Martin Carter was effective, although barbarically deceitful. When a lamb dies, sometimes the mother mourns and stays with the carcass. We would bring the dead lamb back to the barn, carrying it by its front legs, thus allowing the mother to smell the body and follow us while still emotionally attached to the scent. Once she was locked in the barn, we would quickly disappear out of sight with her beloved lamb and commit a crime of identity fraud. We would skin the carcass and tie the slimy, bloody jacket to an orphan. We would then release the strangely clad orphan to the ewe. It amazed me how gullible the sheep would be. The recently bereaved mother would bleat with delight at the miraculous recovery of her offspring. She immediately let it suckle. It was far quicker and more effective than using the adopter. I chose to believe that we made the mother very happy and thus the end justified the bloody means. It is also an inspiring time. If you enjoy nature, there is real wonder in being present when a lamb first splutters into life. I could assist the whole event. After a lamb flopped onto the earth, if there were no immediate signs of life, 
I would remove the mucus from its nostrils and try to jump start the tiny body. Sometimes it could be many minutes before I got a result, almost like trying to start an engine with a faulty spark plug. I would be quite rough if necessary. I would pick the lamb up by its front legs and swing it around my head, as Dad had shown me many times, forcing air into its lungs. This astonished my friends. Matthew would gasp in amazement as I apparently brought these soggy little creatures back from the dead. I felt like some kind of spiritual healer with a special gift, even though what I was doing was basic and obvious to any sheep farmer. As the lambs take their first breath, one observes the soul rushing into the small body and claiming it for the measure of one lifetime, however short. It affected me. Why go to all this effort of bringing these creatures into this world only to send them off to abattoirs? I formed many friendships, particularly with the rejected lambs for whom we could find no surrogate mother. I would bottle feed them and they considered me their mother. Once big enough to make it on their own in the fields and graze for the first time, I would look out for my special protégés. Many of them would run to me, quite tame. Stupidly, I would sometimes sneak a bottle of milk out to them as a special treat. When my own daughter was four or five years old, I would get a similar pleasure if she asked me for a bottle of milk, although I knew she was too old. All she had to do was ask. 